So what does Jesus have to say about himself? What was his understanding of his ministry, his purpose for being here among us? That's the question we are exploring during these weeks. There are so many opinions and theories out there about who Jesus was and what his project was really all about. We're operating on the assumption that what he had to say was more important than what we have to say. And so we are looking at some of the I am statements that Jesus made. These declarations of self-identity in which Jesus states for us directly his purpose and his intention. This morning we come to the next in a series of those statements. This time we find ourselves in the Gospel of John, the 11th chapter. Now we're going to begin in verse 17, which actually drops us into the middle of a story that's been going on. Here's the background. Jesus has already received word that a friend of his named Lazarus is sick. Lazarus and his sisters Mary and Martha uh, live in a place called Bethany, which is not far from Jerusalem. Jesus and his disciples have withdrawn from that area uh, because of the threats that he faces there. But once he receives word that Lazarus is sick, he announces that they're going to go back to that place to be with the family. And so we pick up on the story now as Jesus is entering into Bethany to the news that Lazarus has already died. And the interchange that takes place between Jesus and one of Lazarus' sisters is one of the most insightful in all of the Gospels. Here's what it has to say, beginning in verse 17. On his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Now Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem, and many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed at home. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. And Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she replied. I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who is to come into the world. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. <clears throat> well, sometimes when I lead a discussion on the Bible, I will begin by asking participants in the group to list the qualities that they look for in good literature. In other words, what is it that makes a good book worth reading? Why is it that some books hold our attention and others don't? And I'll ask them to name those things, and we will list them on the board. And then I will try to make the case that 
that for each one of those things, you will find them in abundance in the Scriptures. That if you're looking for a good read, you can't do any better than the Bible. Now, if we had more time, we could explore that question unto itself. But I share it with you because one of the things that sometimes gets named as a quality of good literature is a surprise ending. You see, if we can predict the outcome of the story too far in advance, it generally doesn't hold our attention. We like to come to the end of a story and be surprised, to look at it and say, wow, I didn't see that coming. But then just as importantly, we want to be able to look back and see now how the little hints about that ending were there all along. We just didn't see them. We're intrigued by how the author can take those various strands of the story and and tie them together in a surprising way. We love surprise endings. Some would argue that, that the resurrection of Jesus is exactly that kind of surprise ending. If you're not familiar with how the New Testament is put together, it's helpful to know that the New Testament begins with four books that we call Gospels. They are Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. They each tell a slightly different version of the same story, the story of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. But no matter which one you read, there's one thing that is crystal clear in all of them. Nobody, and I mean nobody, expected Jesus to be alive on that first Easter Sunday morning. This was an outcome that nobody saw coming. Even though Jesus had been dropping hints all along, more than hints, he'd said directly at least three times, I'm going to die, and then three days later, I'm going to be raised back to life. But nobody could comprehend that. So much so that even when they met him on that first Easter Sunday, they couldn't make sense out of what they were experiencing. It was the ultimate surprise ending. But I want to make the argument this morning that if we're going to apply the story of Jesus' resurrection to our lives in a way that makes a difference in how we actually live, we need to understand something. I want to suggest to you this morning that the resurrection is not simply a surprise, happy ending to an otherwise dark and ugly story. In fact, I want to suggest to you that the resurrection was not an ending at all. To the contrary, the resurrection is actually a surprise beginning. Because the resurrection launches an entirely new story that nobody would have expected to be happening. A story that would have never occurred had it not been for the resurrection of Jesus. The resurrection doesn't bring an end to the story so that now the curtain can fall and everybody can ride off into the sunset to live happily ever after. The resurrection launches people into a new trajectory that will turn their lives and indeed the entire world upside down. Now, if we had more time, we could explore some of the more subtle clues about what I have just suggested to you in the Gospels, but but I want to jump to the most important clue of all, and it is this. The New Testament doesn't end with the close of the four Gospels. After we read about the resurrection, we turn next in the Scriptures to the book of Acts which tells the story of the growth and the spread, the unlikely, remarkable, some would say miraculous spread of the church in spite of all the forces that are allied against it. 
And then from there, we have this entire collection of letters written back and forth between individuals and congregations who are struggling to understand what it means to live the resurrection life in a world that doesn't recognize it. Now, all of that is a story that would not have happened had it not been for the resurrection of Jesus. Put it this way, if the resurrection doesn't happen, there is no church. And if the church doesn't happen, there is no New Testament. But because the resurrection does happen, a new and unexpected story is launched. And that story now includes you and me. We are involved now in an entirely new story that we could have never written were it not for what happened on that first Easter Sunday. Now, to make a little more sense of why this matters, we need to go back and and touch for just a moment on what people in the first century believed about life and death. In particular, we want to explore for just a moment what it was that first century Jews believed about life and death and whatever it is that comes after that. And we go back to the earliest books, the first books of the Old Testament, the books of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, sometimes called the books of Moses. Here's what's interesting. There is no mention anywhere in those books about anything about life after death at all, period. No discussion. Because the old covenant that God gave to his people through Moses had to do entirely with how people live in this life. And any speculation about what happened in the life that was to come was just that, speculation. The focus was entirely on the here and the now. Now, as we move forward through the Old Testament, we begin to pick up on some hints about some vague version of an afterlife, but there's not a lot of discussion about it. In the Psalms, for example, there is mention about a place called Sheol, which is a Hebrew word which in translated literally means place of the dead. Sheol is where all the dead went, both the righteous and the unrighteous. But there wasn't a lot of discussion about what that meant or how that worked. It just was acknowledged as a part of what was to come. But then as we move forward in time, particularly in the first few centuries before Jesus arrived on the scene, all of that changed. Over the several hundred years between the close of the Old Testament and the opening of the New Testament, a pretty clear belief had sprung up amongst the Jewish people about life after death, something called the resurrection of the dead. You get glimpses of it in some of the books of the Old Testament. For example, in Job chapter 19 and in the book of Daniel chapter 12, there are hints about it. But but after the closing of those books, the rabbis, the leading religious people of the day, had, had studied this and had worked it out and had developed it into a pretty clear doctrine. And so, by the time we get to the first century A.D., the common teaching was that at the end of time... When God brought about a close to everything and put a fulfillment upon history, there would be a general resurrection of the dead, both the righteous and the unrighteous. And that the righteous at that time would face reward and the unrighteous would face punishment. Now, to be clear, not everybody accepted this belief. 
As you read through the Gospels, you will read about some interactions that Jesus had with a group of leaders and scholars called the Sadducees. And the Sadducees were the strict traditionalist of their day. The Sadducees firmly rejected any belief in any kind of life after death, and they did so for one simple reason. As we've already said, it wasn't discussed in the books of Moses. If the books of Moses didn't talk about the resurrection of the dead, then there was no resurrection of the dead, period. That was their view on the matter. However, I think it is fair to say that if you could have conducted a poll of the average Jewish population living in the first century, what you would have found is that the majority of them already accepted some kind of belief that eventually God would raise the dead. There would be a resurrection. Now, a couple of important things to understand here that help us put put a a sharper focus on what Jesus says in our text today. First, this belief already was in place before Jesus showed up on the scene. It is not the case that resurrection was a new idea that Jesus introduced into the discussion that nobody had ever heard of before. Most of Jesus' contemporaries already believed it. That's why in today's reading, even while Martha is grieving over the death of her brother, she can still with confidence say she believes that her brother will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Now, where did she get that idea? She got it from the spiritual and and, and religious climate in which she lived. That's just what the people of her day had come to accept. But the second thing we need to understand, and and I believe this is central for our purposes this morning, the common belief was that the resurrection wouldn't happen until the end of all things. That's why Martha said to Jesus she believed her brother would rise again in the resurrection at the last day. In other words, the resurrection wasn't supposed to happen until God brought everything to a close and everything was wrapped up and history was over and done and finished. The resurrection was still an event way out there in God's future. That was what people believed. and That is why the events of Easter Sunday were such a complete shock to everybody. Because when God the Father brought God the Son back from the grave, He took what wasn't supposed to happen until some way off, still unyet determined point in the far off future and brought it back into the present moment. We might say God shortened the timeline on Easter Sunday because He collapsed the future into the present. And so on Easter Sunday morning, you've got this guy up walking around as this living, breathing representation of a future that's not supposed to be happening yet. And yet here it is, here he is, right in front of their eyes, God's future revealing itself in their present moment. That's why the Lord said a moment ago that the resurrection isn't about the ending of something. It is about the beginning of something. It is about the beginning of an entirely new way of life that is now accessible in the present moment. 
I want to suggest to you this morning that I am not sure we as a church have fully grasped the fullness of the implications of Jesus' resurrection for our life in the here and the now. Oftentimes the resurrection in our discussions gets flattened out to, to something like this. We will say, Jesus was raised from the dead and so therefore if we believe in him, we have the promise of going to heaven when we die. That's the story. Well, that's a true story. Yes, we do have the promise of going to heaven when we die. And the belief, the faith that Jesus calls us to have in him is the way we access that promise. So that is absolutely true. But if we still think only of the resurrection as some future event, as something that isn't supposed to happen until then... Well, then we miss the way it impacts us here and now. You see, the resurrection of Jesus means that God's new life, this new way of being in the world, this new power that he introduces, it's accessible to us here, now, even as we go about our ordinary lives in our everyday world. This is the wonderful truth and the almost unfathomable mystery that the entire New Testament is trying to convey to us. The New Testament is not merely some collection of new moral principles or moral rules for us to follow. The New Testament in its entirety is an invitation for us to enter into the new life that God is bringing into our present moment now through the resurrected Jesus it's what the Apostle Paul means in the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, when he says this. He writes, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone. The new is here. Did you get that? The new creation, it already has come. Maybe not in all of its fullness. But there are already hints of it, foreshadowings of it, points of access into it right here and now. The old has gone. The new is here waiting for us to enter into it. That new beginning has already begun. And if we are in Christ, that is to say if we are connected to him in a relationship of faith and love, then that newness includes us. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is not an ending, it is a new beginning. It's what Jesus is talking about in today's reading from John chapter 11. When Martha asserts her faith that her brother will rise again at the last day, Jesus takes her expectations and turns them upside down by saying this, I am the resurrection and the life. Notice a couple of things about that statement. 
first, Jesus identifies himself as the resurrection. He doesn't simply identify himself with the resurrection. No, he says he is the resurrection. It's not as though the resurrection is something separate from him, apart from him, over which he has some degree of influence or control. He is the resurrection in his person, in his life. He is the new thing that God is doing, that God is bringing. Second and just important, he says that newness is now. He does not say, I will be the resurrection. He says, I am right here in your presence. When you are with me, when you are in me, I am the resurrection. It's not something that we access only at some point out in some undetermined future. It is here. It is now. Why? Because he is here. He is now. I am the resurrection, and the life. Now, what I'm sharing with you this morning doesn't change some fundamental truths about physical life and physical death. The Bible is clear and unapologetic about a few unavoidable truths, and they go to the heart of our faith, and we need to understand this. First, we will all die. Aren't you glad you came to church this morning? On this beautiful fall Sunday morning, we are all, as somebody once said, ain't none of us getting out of this thing alive. We will all die. Physical death is the destiny of every human being, no exceptions. The scriptures are unapologetic about holding that truth up in front of us, and true wisdom cannot begin until we acknowledge that fact and adjust our lives accordingly. We will all die. But second, as John chapter 5 verse 28 reminds us, at some point in the future, on the day of the Lord, when Christ returns to wrap things up, there will be a physical resurrection when everybody, the righteous and the unrighteous, will be raised up to face judgments. And third, at that time, when that moment of judgment comes, those who have rejected the Lordship of Jesus Christ will face eternal punishment, while those who have embraced Christ will be received into the new heaven and the new earth to spend eternity with God. These are the core truths of the gospel that speak about the future that is still yet to come. But here's the good news of the gospel. We don't have to wait until the future comes to begin accessing that power even here and now. The new life is ours because Jesus is ours. Jesus is the resurrection and the life. And what does that mean in practical terms when we leave here today to go back to our ordinary and everyday lives. Well, I want to borrow a phrase I've heard Pastor Rob use with the students in our youth ministry on more than one occasion. It means this. It means broken things don't have to stay broken and dead things don't have to stay dead. It means that a marriage that's on the verge of collapse can be restored. 
It means that someone facing terminal illness can still find a way to glorify God even with what little remaining time he or she has. It means a person living with guilt and shame over past mistakes can find the weight of that shame lifted off of their shoulders to find new joy. It means someone living with grief after the death of a loved one can still find a way forward to live with meaning and purpose. It means the church of Jesus Christ can still carry out and fulfill its mission in spite of all of the reasons we might give why the world doesn't want to have anything to do with it. And it means a sinner living apart from God can come to repentance and find new life in Jesus Christ Why? Because He is the resurrection and the life. Now for each one of those categories of possibilities that I just gave you, I can give you names and dates of places and people where I have seen those very things happen. And it all points to the fact That Jesus is not just some dearly beloved figure from the past that we gather once a week to remember and celebrate. No, it means Jesus is the living one. He is the risen and reigning Lord who brings God's kingdom into our lives in the moment so that the newness that still awaits us in the future can begin to be accessed now It means that he collapses God's future into our present. Because Jesus is the resurrection and the life. Let's pray together. Father, oh how we need the newness that Jesus brings There are among us this morning those who have never responded in faith to you. And we need the newness of repentance that comes only through the Holy Spirit. There are those among us who are living with a spirit of hopelessness and meaninglessness. And we need the newness that comes to us through the risen Christ and the power of your Holy Spirit dwelling in us. There are those among us living in sin and rebellion against you, and we need the newness that only Jesus brings. And for all of us, there are moments when we live with fear and doubt, and we need the newness that Jesus brings. So come and be our resurrection and our life. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Jesus is the access into the new future that God brings. It's not something that we make happen through our own efforts and our own striving. It comes by surrendering to Him, allowing Him to take control. If you've never responded in faith, that's the first thing to do. If you strayed from him, he's calling you back. If you're needing a church home, he's offering one to you. Whatever your need is this morning, 
He stands ready to give you his newness. If there's something you need to make public in responding to that, I'll be here while we sing. But the call is to all of us to allow God's future to be collapsed into our present moment. I pray that will happen as we worship him. Let's stand and sing together.